Welcome to the Galloway Law Podcast. My name is Thomas Galloway. Today's guest is Jonathan Rosenblum, professor of law at Drake Law School. Professor Rosenblum is working on creating the Sustainable Development Code, along with an advisory committee that includes city developers, architects, other professors of law, a former mayor of Salt Lake City, and other disciplines. This code will be available within the next few months and will be used to advise cities on how to deal with climate changes and technological advances like autonomous vehicles. Many cities are operating on archaic codes that are often 50 or 60 years old, and they find themselves inequipped to handle a rapidly changing world. The Sustainable Development Code addresses some of these issues, and we spent most of the time diving into what some of those issues are. If you enjoy this episode, subscribe and share with a friend. And now, to the interview. So before we get into the Sustainable Development Code in more depth, could you give us, our listeners, a general overview of it and then some of the, about the origin story behind it? Sure, yeah. In fact, the origin story is probably easier in order to get into the code. I think the, the kind of the best way to describe it is to think about the challenges that are facing local governments and communities across the country. They are facing uh, an unprecedented amount of change. That change is coming in a variety of different places, from a variety of different places. We're seeing it in climate change, um, changes in temperatures, changes in precipitation, changes in the ocean, ocean acidification, and others. Changes, though, also in the ecology. So we're seeing more invasive species. We're seeing a changing of species as well. And this is important not only for where we are, agriculture, but we're seeing it across the Pacific Northwest, and we're seeing it in parts of the East as well with the Zika virus and others. Mm -hmm. We're seeing changes in technology. So we're seeing autonomous vehicles come in. We're seeing changes in the economy, the sharing economy and others. So local governments, though, are struggling with all these changes. That said, local governments and local communities don't have the resources to quickly adapt to the changes as they're coming. Many local codes, specifically the code that we're focusing on, the development code, many local codes are 50, 60 years old. And they don't really have any relationship to these changes that we're seeing today. So we're trying to force a um, kind of a a situation that the codes weren't developed for. And so the idea with the Sustainable Development Code is to help local governments quickly adapt to these changes. It's a best practices on issues relevant to sustainability, specifically, though, in the development code. So if you or I went to build a house or a developer went to build development, whether that's a skyscraper, commercial development, industrial product project, we're subject to a whole host of development code issues from local governments. Any and all of those provisions are what we're focusing on and how we can make each one of those provisions uh, more sustainable because they have a whole host of unintended consequences. So that's kind of the overview of the project and and where it comes from. Okay. And as far as the codes that cities are currently following right now, most of them come from a city-by-city type of thing or are some of them from federal government or state governments? What's the origin of most codes they follow? Yeah, that's a, gr- that's a great question. So first of all, the, the power for purposes of land use and land use development resides with state governments. Okay. But state governments, as you can imagine, don't really have the uh, knowledge, don't really have the expertise to specifically regulate development in each local government. Right. So what state governments do is they delegate authority to local governments. So a local government, let's say like Des Moines or New York City or Austin, Texas, doesn't have any inherent authority to develop. 
right, to regulate development in its jurisdiction. It has to get that authority from state codes. Mm -hmm. And so then the state authorizes local governments to do that across the country. And then local governments pass what are typically called zoning codes or development codes or uh, building codes. Okay. Now, one last thing on that, and that's that the federal government has uh, some authority still with this stuff, but most of it comes in the form of uh, funding. So they right. can help fund a variety of projects. Right, okay. And what cities are a little bit behind the curve as far as responding to environmental concerns, and what cities do we see ahead of the curve? Mm, that's a great question, too. So I think it's e probably easier to take the one who's ahead of the curve. Right, because then I think there's kind of like two groups. I mean, not really. There's a couple of different ways to group this, but at the head of the curve is no one, for starters. Right, <laughs> no one's ahead of it. But but there are some that are ahead of the rest of the, the right. cities. Right, and so they're the the usual cast of characters that you would imagine: Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, mm -hmm. New York City. Um, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Boston, Austin, Texas. These are many of the big cities that are doing some really interesting and important things. That said, there are a whole host of uh, smaller cities that are doing some really interesting things as well. Uh, Greensboro, Kansas, for example. It was uh, decimated by a tornado uh, several years ago. And since then, it came back using a sustainable development code modeled on the one we're using here, uh, we're developing here. But so there's those cities... Then, as I said, there's a whole bunch of cities in the middle that are doing kind of one-off, uh, addressing one-off issues relevant to sustainability. So each jurisdiction might be facing a particular issue at that point in time. Right. So let's say they're, they're working through a drought conditions. Right. Right. That they may specifically focus on, okay, well, we need to institute a variety of water conservation measures, and they'll go forward with that. Um, so there's a whole bunch of those cities but keeping in mind that there are 40,000 local governments across the country that have the power to regulate land use in some form or another. Right. That means there's 39,000 plus without not doing anything right, right now, right. or at least not taking the steps that we really nearly need to see to push us into a different um, and more sustainable future. Right. So besides the lack of resources, what are some factors that are keeping these cities from really taking being ahead of the curve? So I don't think we can we can understate lack of resources though, okay. and and lack of resources comes in a different variety of forms. The big one that I think you're probably referring to is monetary resources. Right, right. Yeah. So and you're absolutely right in the sense that most local governments are trying to simply provide for the health, safety, and welfare of the citizens, which means we need to have police on the streets, we need to have teachers in the schools, we need to have our libraries up and running, we want to make sure our parks are working, we want to make sure our fire department's working, we want to make sure we have water. So the critical services have to be covered first. Most of the state governments are focused on that, those issues, right? The question, and this is where we really come in, is that they don't have the time and the resources to then step back and say, well, are we doing this in the most efficient and most sustainable way? Right. That's, again, where we kind of come in. But So the resources, though, come in funding resources. But I also think um, a critical one is just simply expertise. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, many local governments just don't have the staff that are really looking at, let's say, climate change or let's say water conservation or, or air purification, soil retention. Any of these issues that we're looking at, uh, they're typically not someone on staff that is an expert right. in that. Right, okay. Um, so getting a bit into the code itself, there's a number of different chapters, which I have some here. 
Um, and I'd like to just ask what the code suggests on a number of these different topics. Uh, starting with the mobility and transportation section, what, do, what does the code recommend uh, cities do about autonomous vehicles and new technology with that? Yeah, so we're getting into this right now. This is so okay. m- much of the code. Our, our intent was to launch with fifty to sixty percent of the code drafted. Okay. Um, however, we have drafted about fifteen percent of it, gotcha. and most of the folks that have read the fifteen percent say it's invaluable. You got to get out there now. So we're actually right. going to launch in the next uh, two months or so okay. with the code that we have out there. On the autonomous vehicle stuff, though, we haven't we haven't uh, put together the full chapter yet. The issues, though, that we are primarily looking at is how it is going to change the physical landscape. Um, right. And what we mean by that, or like a very clear example of that, is most codes right now, development codes, require developers to put in a minimum amount of parking spaces. Mm-hmm. The question is, is that really necessary anymore? You know, if we're going to start having autonomous vehicles, we're going to have a variety of modes of transportation around the city. What is the need for these massive parking lots? Right. Um, and so those are the kind of issues that we're really looking at. Okay. And along with that parking, and that seems would kind of go hand-in-hand hand with public transit as well. Uh, and the code, so code recommends that the less amount of parking available, the better, right? Because that would be dis- discourage people from driving their own cars or in- instead taking public transit? I think it's a combination of things. Kind of okay. where, you know, where we park is, a, is an important part of this. Right. I mean, as a general matter, if the public transportation is extraordinarily efficient, let's say, in New York City, right. right, where you can get to a variety of different places in the city very easily on a variety of modes of transportation, on the subway, on the bus... Mm-hmm. Uh, then we, we can kind of say in, in a blanket statement that, okay, we want to probably get rid of parking right. as a general matter. Uh, other situations, though, require us to think more creatively about, well, maybe we do want parking, but we want it in certain areas. We want it, let's say, focused around a transportation hub that can then get us into a particular jurisdiction or out of a jurisdiction. So just thinking more creatively as opposed to just saying anywhere in our jurisdiction Everyone has to have parking in all places at these minimums. Right. Um, and so th- I think that's a big part of this. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the public transportation is a big part of this. But then the other chapters in the mobility transportation section are critical as well, thinking about pedestrian mobility and bicycle mobility. You know, in the United States, we often think about uh, bicycles as a mode of exercise, right? right. Whereas in many Scandinavian countries, for example, it's much more a mode of transportation to get to and from work. And so to figure out, well, how do we get to that place where you can still use it for exercise, but it's also a very usable tool to get to work or to get to the grocery store and that kind of thing. So some of these older codes that are still being followed, what do they generally advise as far as the parking space? Yeah, it's a, so there's usually three, well, there's many parts to it, right? But I think there's three that we focus on. Uh, number one is that minimum code. Right. And what you'll see is a chart. And the chart will say um, in one column the use. So it will say a bowling alley or a single-family home or a, um, an office space or a golf course. And then in the next column, it will say what the minimum parking is for that particular use. So a bowling alley might say something like, for every two lanes, you need to have three parking spaces or something like that, right? So first is the chart that gives you the minimum amount of parking that you need for that particular project. 
The second thing we often see is that it will tell, the code will tell developers that that parking lot must be asphalt or some type okay. of um, impervious surface. So it doesn't allow the water to spread through, to, go, to filtrate through. That's the second. And then the third thing we often see in these codes is a minimum dimension per parking slot. So it tells you for each parking slot it has to be 8.5 feet by 19.5 feet or something along those lines. What the three of those things do combine is they ensure that we will have a massive amount of impervious surface across many local governments. And you see them wherever you drive throughout suburbia or even in many jurisdictions that are, are more central to, um, to an urban core. You'll see these kind of massive parking lots that aren't used. They have a number of different effects. I mean, the clear one is stormwater management. They put a huge amount of pressure on stormwater systems mm -hmm. because they don't allow the water to filtrate through into the soil. What it, what it then does is the water just gets pushed off into the local government system. That costs money, obviously. Right. Um, the second, though, is they, they are an immense um, source of heat, right? They, they, they convert solar energy into heat, and then we have a heat island effect as well. Um, and then, of course, the third thing to think about is just general maintenance and whether or not they are usable. And many developers will even tell you that they don't want them. They would prefer minimum, I mean maximums, right, in the sense that this is just simply a cost that yeah. they have to put out. And so what we're trying to do is address many of those issues through the Sustainable Development Code. Okay. Uh, as far as parking garages, I guess I've always kind of wondered this. Who owns them? How, what, how do they decide when to put them in? Where do they put them in? How does that process work? Yeah, and, and, and sort of why? Why yeah, is it, why? Why, why yeah. it happening? Right, because yeah. in many of these jurisdictions, I mean, and, and you know, we're here in Des Moines, and Des Moines is a great example. We have parking lots on really prime real estate in downtown right. Des Moines, but they're rethinking many of those lots, okay. and, and several of them are, have been selected to be knocked down to, to convert over. So the, the process of parking lots is, uh, is an interesting one in that we have to kind of, at the outset, distinguish between public lots and private lots. Mm -hmm. So the public lots is almost a different system and something that we don't address through the Sustainable Development Code because we are mostly concerned with the process of developers and, and, and getting a project built. So that takes us into the private lots. The private lots are really mostly a function of the minimum parking standards. Okay. So the developer looks at this, the, the scenario, they run an ROI, a return on investment, and, and look at the possible parking um, schemes that they could put forth. So is it more economical for us to put out a, um, a parking deck, three stories, or should we just spread it all out on one level? What is right. the most economical? How can we get the best return on our investment here? So the lots, though, I mean, the, the parking decks, then, what they then become, though, is a, is a break in pedestrian walking as well, okay. right? So as right. we're walking through, like, if you walk around downtown, or, again, many um, urban areas throughout the country, you'll see uh, a nice kind of pedestrian area where there's a bunch of shops, there's a whole bunch of activities, but then it's broken up by a parking deck. Um, and I think many local governments now are now starting to rethink that. What, why do we, where do we, why do we have parking right here? And how can we rethink our parking? Right, okay. And you know what, the other interesting question on that, to bring it back to the other question you asked, which was on autonomous vehicles, right. is what's going to happen with those parking decks? Right. Right, so as the number of people driving is reduced, what's going to happen with those decks? Will they simply turn into autonomous vehicle parking decks, 
Or there have been a number of proposals to convert parking decks into commercial lofts and commercial space. Um, But that's going to be a big question. And again, it's one that many jurisdictions are are struggling with, again, including Des Moines, that has looked at um, how to convert or really what we're doing is tearing down the parking deck and and building a new structure on top of it. Right, gotcha, okay. So moving to Section 1, talking about environmental health and natural resources, uh, specifically with uh, solid waste management and recycling, what are some of the methods, common methods, cities are using in those areas? So there's a number of things we want to think about here, and they're the kind of the classic ones that like uh, sixth grade, uh, rather six-year-old kids learn in school, right? You want right. to think about reducing, you want to think about reusing, and want to think about recycling. Right. All three of those are things that we need to focus on when we're looking at uh, construction sites, okay. right? And so we're talking about, I mean, there's a huge amount of debris, obviously, in the deconstruction process. Right. And so we're talking about how can we, we're, we're looking at different types of salvaging of materials, either deconstruction and salvage or salvage on site. Um, the other thing, though, that we really want to think about is post-construction. And so with, there's a, a whole, you know, um, each jurisdiction deals with their municipal waste uh, process differently, and by municipal waste, I actually don't—I don't mean the public waste. I mean private sector waste, right? right? So, uh, residential may have one system, and multifamily and commercial may have another. Um, and so, really focusing though, this code does on the multifamily aspects because that's also often deficient in local right. governments, where single-family residents—and and again, actually, Des Moines is a very good example of this. We have a great process of single-stream recycling here in Des Moines, which means that residential landowners can throw out a whole host of recyclable materials in one place. It's very efficient. It's very easy for the homeowner. It's a little difficult on the back end, but from the homeowner's perspective, it's very easy. Multifamily doesn't have the same structure. Um, And so really focusing on how to get multifamily recycling up and running. Now, again, that's just one aspect of one of the construction. We also want to think about how we can reuse, and then we want to think about how we can reduce, which is a big part of this as well. Right. And moving on to the urban forestry and vegetation, in the one paper that I saw that talked about the examples in Charlotte and Baltimore, Mm -hmm. the tree canopy uh, rule. Could you go through those two examples? Sure. So this is this is actually the, I'm glad you asked about this because what so the you know for for those listening the way the structure of this um, the code is is there's 30 chapters and we're kind of going through various sub chapters and this is one of them. For each of the 30 chapters, there's 30 to 40 recommended action items that we're uh, recommending for local governments to take. So that's about 900 action items. For each action item, we have what's called a brief, and they were designed with the intent that they could quickly go into city council members and city staff and to say this is what it is and this is what you should do, but here's also some examples of cities that have done them, and here are the ordinances from those local governments that you can just sort of adapt, ad- adopt. The one that you've asked about is expanding the tree canopy cover, and this is a really important one because in many local governments um, have what's called a tree mitigation ordinance. And what that allows is a developer to come in and when they take out trees, they have to replace a certain amount of trees. Typically, though, you'll see two things. One, the replacement of trees is either um, inefficient in the sense that it's um, either one-to-one or it's less than one-to-one. So if you take out a, a tree, let's say, of a 12-inch diameter, you're replacing it with something less than that. 
The second thing that, that really comes up in, in existing codes is that they have an exemption for anything that is called gray infrastructure. So if you remove trees, let's say for a street, an internal street, or you remove trees for a detention pond, uh, there's no need to replace those trees. Mm -hmm. And that's problematic because that's a huge swath of area that can be taken out. Um, and so the idea with these codes is to require developers to, or in some cases incentivize developers through a variety of means, to increase the tree canopy cover on the site. So when they come to the site, if the tree canopy cover is, um, I think one of the examples is under 30%, they actually have to increase the tree canopy cover to 40% or something okay. along those lines, okay. which is a big step for local governments. I mean, you can look at almost any local government in the country and their tree canopy cover has been on a steady decline. And that has a whole host of effects, right? Because trees, they provide water filtration, air filtration, soil retention, um, and there's a whole host of health and mental benefits that come from trees as well. So the, the idea with the tree canopy cover and the, and the ordinances that are out of Charlotte and Baltimore are to do exactly that, to help expand that tree canopy cover. Right. Okay. And a broad question, as far as, as you create this code, do you look back at some of the history as far as what other cities have done in the past, or is that so archaic at this point, it's so like, it's not even relevant anymore, that you're just focusing on like science and research is happening right now as far as creating this code? So it's, it's somewhere in the middle okay. that we're doing. And what we're trying to do is we're looking at, at the very beginning you had asked which cities are, are really ahead of the curve, right? What we're doing is we're looking at those cities that are ahead of the curve. That said, we're trying to stay away from the, the Portlands and the Seattles. Because there, if you are in a rural jurisdiction in Iowa or in Minnesota or in Illinois, do you really care what Portland is doing? I mean, you may care as a, as a, as a moral matter, but, right. but not in terms of what you're going to institute in your own code, right? right? So what we're trying to do is find examples from cities that have more parallels to more local governments out there. Um, and so each one of the briefs that we put up online has at least six examples of cities that have adopted that ordinance. So we were talking about expanding the tree canopy cover. We had mentioned Charlotte and Baltimore, but there's four other smaller jurisdictions in that same brief that uh, we cite as well, and we, we link to their ordinances. So the idea is to find those cities that are ahead of the curve on this particular issue, right. put those in there so that cities can then just simply go right to those codes and pull the language from them. Right, okay. If you had, say, 90 seconds to talk to a city and address one of these issues, what would you focus on? What would you tell them? Well, that's a great issue as well. I mean, so, I mean, great question. So the first thing, though, I, I mean, before, I, before my 90 right. seconds starts, right. <laughs> let me qualify. So the, the 30 subchapters that we have are really designed to be like a menu. Right, and so the idea is that a local government can look at the menu and see what it's confronting. Right. Because no local government is going to be interested in all 30 issues. And, and that's somewhat by design in the sense that they are very diverse jurisdictions across the country, right? So right. for example, one of those chapters is coastal hazards. Right. It's irrelevant for many jurisdictions, right? right. And the same thing, we have um, wildfire, we have a wildfire chapter, also irrelevant for many jurisdictions, right? right? 
That said, I think it's two that are applicable, and we can start the clock now. <laughs> but two, two that are applicable for jurisdictions across the country are climate change chapter 1.1 and biodiversity uh, wildlife ha habitats, which is chapter 1.3. Uh, I think the, the issue with those is that it, it almost doesn't matter which jurisdiction you're in. There are a variety of issues on those fronts that local governments can address. And, and I think that it's important about both of those two subchapters are many of the codes that are out there right now have unintended consequences on biodiversity and climate change. And simply making um, very quick and efficient and easy alterations to a, a host of provisions in the development code so it wouldn't change operations, developers wouldn't be all that impacted, could have a positive effect on wildlife habitat and on climate change. Um, and, and so the way that we've structured the code is in three ways um, for each chapter has this remove existing obstacles. Mm -hmm. So what in the existing code is stopping us from assisting on climate change or becoming more uh, diverse in terms of biodiversity? And then the other two are creating incentives and fill regulatory gaps, kind of a, right. a, a carrot and a stick approach. But I think that first one is really what I would talk to local governments about. You know, How are we currently operating that we're having unintended consequences? Things that we, we don't want to do as a jurisdiction, I'm certain of it. Um, but what we do want to do is we want to maybe promote economic development in a way, but how do we do that without um, increasing emissions unintendedly um, or uh, harming wildlife, um, again, in an unintended way? Right. The mentions that there's an advisory committee for this uh, Sustainable Development Code, and a uh, wide variety of uh, disciplines represented. What's the advantages of uh, having so many disciplines, and what's a bit of the origin getting all those people together? It, and answering both of those questions come from the same same point, and that is that the, the code originally uh, came out of discussions between planners, lawyers, architects, developers, uh, and there was a core group of individuals that really put this code together uh, back in 2007 or so. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the idea was that each of us, just no matter how hard we may try, kind of operate in our own silo or bubble, and it's really important to think about the development process as it affects the law, as it affects architecture, as it affects uh, development, as it affects planning, and vice versa. And so it was really important, and it's been very important from the very beginning, that we have this interdisciplinary focus behind it. And while we're spearheading it here out of the law school um, and in conjunction with a, with a planning department, it is very much practice-focused. Right. And so we have a lot of practitioners working on it, uh, again, from a variety of disciplines. And, and I think that that is critical for uh, these issues because, again, you, know, you had brought up science earlier. It, much of these issues, or many of these issues, can't really be fleshed out properly without getting information from a variety of disciplines, including science and others. Right. Okay. And my last question, uh, at this code's most ideal application, how do you see it being utilized by cities? Yeah, this is a great question, too. It's sort of a vision, you know, like, what, what do we want for the code? And I, and I think the, the, the most sort of uh, immediate or midterm positive aspects that can come out of the code is to f start to find cities that are coming to the code once we launch it, that are coming to the code and saying, these are the critical issues that we're struggling with. What is the answer that the code is suggesting right. here? And they start to implement that. And the, the idea is that uh, 
that they're again you know to take it full circle now right that they're facing these challenges and these changes but then you know how how can we make it as easy as possible to institute the changes so that we can start to get to a much better place um, you know as the federal government pulls back from a lot of these stuff uh, a lot of this stuff on the environment uh, local governments are stepping in and they have to step in so this is to facilitate that right well thank you very much for your time yeah thank you